Hello and welcome to another edition of the Predator Podcast, the show where we help you navigate the choppy waters of the technology industry. Uh, each week we talk about the the winds of change blowing through the technology channel and uh, how we can help you trim the sails to effectively accelerate your journey. Uh, each week we have some guests, um, people who've experienced this uh, journey and we learn from them. Uh, where else can you as a technology executive or channel CEO where can you learn from others, not just about the technology, but more importantly about business reorganization, business transformation, change, all of the things that you need to do to be successful uh, in navigating this extremely disruptive time. So this week, uh, welcome to two guests. Uh, very, very delighted to welcome uh, Mark Sampson and Doug Sawyers. So let me just give you a bit of uh, introduction to each one. So Mark Sampson is the founder and CEO of Belief, uh, a leading organizational identity practice. Uh, Mark specializes in helping ambitious services companies to separate themselves from their competition by codifying what makes them different, distinctive, and desirable. Welcome, Mark. Great to be here, Al. And also with me uh, is a good friend of mine, Doug Sawyers. Uh, Doug is the uh, non-executive director of Predator, uh, so recently joined. Welcome to Doug. And Doug brings with him nearly 30 years of board experience from various industries, HR, travel, and B2B business services sectors. Uh, he's run businesses for over 20 years and including overseeing the transition to SaaS, software as a service, and the development of new business and commercial models. Welcome, Doug. Great, Al. Nice to be here. Thanks. So, okay. So we've decided that the CEO's vision is effectively brought in at both finance and sales director level. And um, we've set the sale, got the strategy mapped out. We know where we're going. How do we bring it about? And at Predator, we're seeing various different scenarios, as many scenarios as there are partners that we work with. So what I want to do is maybe have a look at um, the different routes that partners can take. And this is going to depend on their financial resources, their desire uh, to do various different options. But effectively, we could... Uh, decide that we're going to buy a business to acquire SaaS or technologies as service skills. Uh, and if we buy it, do we keep it as a separate entity or do we try and merge it into the, the core business? Um, we could uh, grow from within, you know, identify key skills, enable those skills more, do some sort of skills transformation program, in which case there's then two options. Do we roll it out across the whole business or do you keep it as a separate division? So I want to just lean on the experience here in the room of Doug and Mark and just explore some of these options. So each in turn. So turning to you, Doug, you know, I've decided that I've got a good cash pile. Um, I'm, I'm going to, I want to accelerate this. I want to get moving with it. So I'm going to make an acquisition. Um, I'm going to go and buy a smaller business that's already got uh, recurring revenue stream business model. From a financial perspective, what what should I be aware of in that acquisition? I think uh, you're acquiring that business to help transform your existing business and make it a bigger, more successful business. So before you know signing on the line, if you like, you have to consider um, what impact you want that acquisition to have. I don't think there's any point in just buying a separate business and keeping it separate. You're buying it to bring in those skills to help evolve and change your core business into future shape. 
So you have to be very self-aware in terms of this pace with which you're going to bring those skills into your business. Secondly, you've got to be very aware of the fact that um, if you are the acquirer, then another company is being bought. And uh, the special skills that they may have might might be portable. And you don't want to be buying something that you find that the skills and experiences departing from quite quickly. So you have to make that new acquisition very welcome within your, your stable. And part of that job is uh, encouraging the new to come in, but it's also encouraging the existing to accept. Um, so there's a number of dimensions you have to consider. Uh, but my own recommendation would be that you, you know yourself very well, just as much as you've done the due diligence on the, the, the company you're looking to acquire. Time is a key resource. Um, if we tick the box, that cash is there. And uh, flexibility of approach is necessary, but you've got to be determined to get uh, the transformation um, that's behind the reason for your acquisition in the first place over the line within a certain time period, uh, maybe that two years or three years, so that your business is new shape, new model within an acceptable time frame, enabling your financial performance not to have too much of a hiccup. And talking about time frames, what would be your, on any acquisition, bear in mind your, you know, let's say your traditional business model is transactional and you're moving to maybe a smaller revenue but a recurring revenue model um what would be your timeline for a return on investment and and how would you uh, what models would you use to to do that so i i, I think there's a variety of different approaches you you take but again it comes down to the specific aims of uh, the individual circumstances and uh, i would look closely at making sure that you knew well the the value of your existing revenues the length of time with which they are contracted to you um, any other undertakings that you've committed to with existing uh, clients uh, know that extremely well so you can predict um, how much uh, that is going to affect your cash flow in the next one, two, three years uh, make sure that that's um, solid and understood completely then again take uh, realistic um, views over uh, how the new revenue streams are going to come into your business and change the, the shape of uh, the way the financial profile rhythm looks. Uh, make sure that um, uh, you're, you're clear enough on the margin impact, not just the timing of the cash flow impact. But th- there are a number of things you'd have to consider um, uh, before confirming the route forward. Uh, I, again, a lot depends on the urgency with which you're facing into this. Is it a necessity or a nice-to-do? My suggestion would be in most cases think more necessity. Um, and then behind that, uh, the appetite for change, um, the drive necessary, convince yourselves that this is the right way to go forward. If you don't have uh, the vast majority of your senior leaders in the business up for it, then you maybe think again mm-hmm. uh, before um, going after an aggressive timescale. Uh, but many, many different angles to consider. Okay, so so let's let's take one of those angles then. So you've got your models and it's all mapped out and like anything the best laid plans on contact with anything with the enemy can be disrupted and one of those enemies one of those challenges can be cultural acceptance of of an acquirer and acquired company so can i bring mark in to talk about where you see the potential pitfalls in this strategy of your journey from var to msp through acquisition Mm. you know where where do you see do you see any cultural challenges there and and if so where would the pinpoint pinch points be so I think whether you, whether you're having a buy approach, so an acquisition approach, or whether you're doing a build approach, I think you have to almost start with the so what question. 
Um, and so everything that we're talking about is about change, right? There's going to be an element of change. And so if you're bringing in, uh, you know, if you're acquiring another organization to kind of buy those skills and capability into the business, if your employees in the existing business, then you're going, well, so what? You know, how does this matter to me? What is this going to do for my role? You know, what is this going to do for the organization? And actually, if you're the company being acquired, you're thinking exactly the same questions. And so for me, I think the element of communication and having total clarity of that so what, of why this actually matters, why is this a strategic imperative? And what does this mean for the people in both sides, you know, both businesses? I think that's that's where you've really got to start. Mm. And, and given, you know, we've talked before about um, people's resistance to change, you know, especially in, in, a, in a fairly mature business IT channel. You know, you're talking about executive teams that are certainly into their 40s in most cases. They've been running a VAR business for 15, 20, 30 years. So you're going to have that resistance to change. You're going to have that ingrained habits. Um, and we talked about maybe the two options of growing your own versus acquisition. Um, surely it would be just quicker just to buy a business and have the skills and, and have a ready-made MSP business than it would be to change from within. So I think um, there have been plenty of examples, and I've been privy to a few where actually the well, body- name, no names, though, right? <laughs> no mm-hmm. names, but where the body effectively has rejected the organ, mm-hmm. and so you know you're bringing a new organ into the body, and ultimately the body goes, no thanks. Um, and two examples, I suppose. One where I've seen an organization get bought by another and actually all of the key people in that organization don't like the new organization and so very quickly start to filter away. Now, the problem is if your key talent that's going to really drive the change starts to trickle away, well, then what have you really bought? Um The second one, I was involved in an organization that had put lots of different companies together, four or five, um, and there wasn't any real understanding by the employees, apart from we're bigger now, therefore we're better, of why this actually mattered to them individually. And I think, you know, it goes back to the fact that, you know, whether you're going to build or whether you're going to buy, there is an invisible force at work. And that invisible force, going back to that old Peter Drucker quote that culture eats strategy for for lunch, well, that invisible force of culture is going to determine whether the body rejects the organ or whether your change in terms of your build approach is actually going to take hold and and, and move forward. So what I'm hearing then, Mark, is you may think it's quicker to get what you want by acquiring, but you're, you can't shortcut the shortcut. And what you're saying is the shortcut is you've got to get the cultural change first, regardless of whether you're building your own or whether you're going to acquire. Because on the second route, if you acquire and the cultures don't fit, you're effectively acquiring some skills, but potentially only for a short period. Yeah, there's got to be a match, right? And, and going back to Doug's point, you know, you're not you're not doing this like you know, Amazon acquired, uh, you know, the online uh, retailer Zappos. You know, Zappos absolutely famous for its unique and quirky culture, but they left Zappos alone, right? Zappos hasn't become Amazon. You know, they've been left to their to their own devices. Um, 
whereas what we're talking about is that and and you know you're going to acquire an organization to complement your existing one and so it is going to come in nine times out of ten under your existing brand and so understanding you know the i suppose the cultural differences um, between two organizations is going to be vital for that body to accept that organ mm. Uh, and also, if, if there's clearly going to be cultural differences, no two businesses are alike. How do you stop, if you're the CEO, you know, you're Mr. CEO of an IT channel, you've acquired this new business, how do you stop uh, infighting between those two cultures? How do you stop the new people that have been brought in, being seen as the saviors and the chosen ones? What uh, can you do about yeah, that? In my experience, I've been involved in multiple, we've, Bought many companies and also been acquired many times, actually. So uh, quite a few battle uh, scars, but also good positive experience. My experience would be to suggest that the acquiring company's culture is going to be paramount. And that means that if you're the CEO of that acquiring company, you need to have the support of your team. So it's not just you that's saying it's a good idea to acquire this extra business. Um, You have to make sure that you've got a very accepting culture within your acquiring company. It shouldn't be arrogant, shouldn't be this is the way we are, you've got to bend with it. You've got to make sure that the home is a safe one for the new organ, if you like, to come into that particular body. So that's that would be my priority if I was doing it again tomorrow. Um, on the acquired company side, it's about being listened to. Uh, it's about um, being respected, uh, but having the opportunity to properly influence, if you like, the mothership. And the feeling that uh, you've not just been bought for some other reason mm-hmm. uh, is really important to overcome. But you can't achieve success with an acquired company unless the acquiring company is taught, tutored, coached in how to um, take inside uh, an acquired business. I'd, I'd second that entirely. I think that you know it, it really comes down to that there's going to be value on both sides. And, you know, the company that's getting acquired isn't necessarily subservient to the company that's doing the acquiring, you know, like you're being acquired for a reason. And so just understanding as the two leaders of those organizations of the value that both of you are going to bring, like you're going to sell your company to someone else for a reason. Mm-hmm. And that's got to be right for you. And actually, you're going to buy a company for a reason. And that's got to be right for you. And then having that, you know, toe to toe attitude and having that clear line of communication out to everyone that's going to be affected by that change is, is paramount. Okay. So, uh, Doug, I want to ask you about uh, financing this sort of acquisition. So, um, a lot of the partners that we work with here at Predator, you know, they, they don't have the reserves from cash in order to make an acquisition. So, you know, they've either got two options, get some sort of external investment to fund the acquisition or go to route A, which is evolution within. Um, let's say they choose, they, they're confident in their strategy and they've, they've, they want to acquire these skills and this type of business model and, and bring it into the business. Um, your experience as a, in private equity, PE, uh, venture capital, things like that, what, what would you advise them? I mean, bear in mind, this is, this is not necessarily startup land. These, these are companies that have been yeah. in business for 10, 15, 20 plus years. So, so the question is in terms of getting external finance yeah. to, to fund uh, that acquisition. Um, I think uh, you have to be very, very clear and certain over uh, why you're making that acquisition, what impact that's going to have on your numbers. You have to be realistic about uh, perhaps a pause in performance while an acquisition is bedded in, etc. But uh, on the other side, there's plenty of money around in the world of VCs and private 
private equity. Um, they have there. There's almost too much money around, which means that if you if you are convincing with your story, if you find the right avenues, the right routes, you should get a very competitive deal from uh, from that um, arena. Uh, I wouldn't jump necessarily to private equity and venture capital. There are other sources of funding uh, potentially available, depending on scale. Uh, for Do each. you have time to go through some of those stories? Uh, well. It, there are many uh, consortium of le- consortium of lenders that um, could offer uh, mid to long term debt to fund uh, your acquisition, uh, or at least offer uh, competitive terms on that debt for a minimum amount of equity, rather than if you go straight to um, if you don't check the market enough and go straight to VCs and PE, you might find that you've given away too much of your existing company. Uh, for the for the uh, pleasure of acquiring, making it slightly larger, more mostly for uh, the private equity of the VCs uh, gain rather than your own. So we've got to be very uh, careful. Take advice from people who have done it, been through it. Uh, there are plenty of advisors out there who can steer steer businesses in different directions in terms of uh, different options. But my own um, advice would be number one: make sure you convince yourselves. Make sure you can convince anybody that you'd be prepared to accept money from. Treat it like that, accepting money from somebody, not not being given money. You're accepting a deal from somebody else rather than them driving it. Uh, convince yourselves, convince them, and then make sure it's a competitive process. And uh, you will find um, that the, the, the cheapest money uh, goes to the strongest stories. Weak stories, poorly prepared or vague, uh, yes, you may be able to attract funding, but it's going to be more expensive and, and less positive for your business in the longer term. Okay, thank you, Doug. So, so Mark, in, in terms of this um, organizational change, you talked about how you need to prepare the ground before an acquisition or prepare the ground even before you're going to go through your internal transformation. Um what, what would you suggest? How do you go about preparing that ground? What are the you know top three steps, or what recommendations would you make to uh, start assessing your culture and deciding you know what you need to do to get match fit, if you like, for the technology as a service world? So I think it comes back to you know what we've been saying is is that understand your reason for doing it, and then understand you know why this matters to the to the people within your company. Um, you know, I think. A lot of the time when we communicate business change, we communicate it from a place of ourselves. So uh, here's what I want from this or here's why the business wants this. But, you know, your business is made up of people. And actually, your change, the success of your change is going to come down to the engagement of those people. And so really, I would say what's paramount is, you know, what's in it for them. You know, if you're communicating to your business um, actually, why why is this needed? I think another big part of change is actually to communicate what isn't changing. And so often, you know, when we do communicate things, we're saying, oh, look, this is the new world. And isn't this going to be incredible? And uh, But actually, like for people, that can be quite unnerving. And so I would almost say, like, here are the reasons why we've been successful as a business. Here are the things that we really, really care about. Here are the things that differentiate us from everybody else in our space. But we recognize that we need to remain relevant to our audience. And that's really why now we're embarking on this journey. And I'll go back to one thing that Doug said earlier. 
that he said that a business that he was involved in needed a change in the eyes of its investors. And I would say, actually, when we're talking about VAR to MSP, a lot of this is about a business needing to change in the eyes of its customer. And so its customer today is expecting, you know, a a different model, a consumption model. And so really, you know, why does a business need to go on to this journey? Well, it's to double down on all of the things that we've always been great at, but to continue to be relevant to our customer base. Mm. Mark, you've talked about doubling down. And Doug, you've talked about, you know, you've got to go all in on this. You can't just put one foot in, one toe in, if you like. Um, What I've noticed with working some with partners that are going through the transformation, maybe say 80, 90% of their business is still transactional or professional services rather than managed services. Um, and they're saying, look, we've got to move to managed services. We've got to grow our business. But then at the first sign of a salesperson landing a mega transactional deal, that salesperson's put on a pedestal, gets the trip to Hawaii, you know, is lauded in front of everyone. And yet that's the model that the business is trying to move away from. So although they're trying to change the culture and say, this is what we want. I'm I'm often seeing that, well, nothing's changed. Yeah, I think it comes back to that old adage of catch people doing things right. And you need to define what is right. And so if you are serious, and you touched on it there, Al, like if this is a science project, right, and you're not really that serious about it, then continue to recognize and reward and celebrate the old achievements. But if this is an instrumental part, you know, and a strategic imperative for you as a leader and a leadership team moving forward, then you need to really pay attention to your reward programs and what are you celebrating and what are you cheerleading? Because that's what people are going to pay attention to. Who, whose responsibility is it to to drive this cultural change? Is it, is it an HR function, Doug? I mean, you know HR or is it, is it something else? Who, who owns this? So for me, the culture of an organization is the absolute responsibility of the CEO. More pressure on them. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I completely agree. And uh, a really strong CEO has um, a great team. And uh, the the HR component part of his or her thinking is uh, always uh, to the fore on thinking. And it's, it's, it's that side that is going to really make the difference. It won't be how good the accountants are with respect to accountants. It will be how good can we, uh, can we make this drive towards a different direct, in a different direction, um, by bringing our people on board with, uh, a better still understanding of where the, the customers are, where their heads are. Mark, just to play devil's advocate to your point, let's say you've got a CEO that, you know, could be, he could have built the business because he was a great technical guy, decided to want to get into business for himself, but he's not necessarily a change agent from a cultural perspective. He's not evangelical. He's not passionate about, about the business, but sort of quietly loves it. Is there never a point where you challenge that assumption that it's got to be driven by the CEO? It can't be driven by, you can't you know, put someone in place who can make that change better than the CEO? Absolutely not. So, so I think that, you know, if you look at Microsoft, Bill Gates was an introverted leader. You know, he was a super, super technical genius. But he had Steve Ballmer. 
you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, like you can be the leader of an organization, but it's all about recognizing your strengths. And really, like, I think this is where the definition of a leader gets a little bit blurred in the fact that, oh, you need to be this super charismatic, you know, leader out the front with the pom-poms leading the change. You don't have to be, but you do have to be the keeper of the culture. And so you need to understand in order to drive performance in this business, right? What do we stand for? What do we represent? What do we tolerate? What won't we tolerate? And I think where companies go slightly awry is they don't have, you know, a standard for admission in their business beyond competency. And so what I mean by that is we're really good at hiring for skill, but we're not so good at hiring for cultural fit. And actually, you know, if you start to promote people within your business, then that's going to signify what you really care about. People are watching who gets promoted and then role modeling those behaviors. And so actually, if you're a business that is driven by sales performance at all cost over, say, you know, customer care, well, guess what? You're going to promote your best salespeople. And they're just going to drive more of that culture. Whereas if you're a CEO and that you believe that everything that we are doing is about treating the customer with respect and dignity and we're here to serve, then you'll start appointing people into leadership positions that rob on all those behaviors. Mm. But we're, we're talking about businesses that are, you know, going through change whilst moving. Okay. Now, obviously, you can't steer a ship unless it's moving, right? So that's that's good. But at the same time, you're having to fight against these habits. These ing- I keep coming back to this, these ingrained habits. And transformation puts stress on a business. It puts stress on the executive team. It puts stress on the CEO. And they're going to be trying, they're going to come across uh, loyal executives, loyal colleagues that have been with the business through thick and thin with the old model that aren't necessarily going to buy into the new strategy. And and we've talked about, yeah, yeah, we'll get the finance director on board. We'll get the sales director on board. But in my experience, it's never that easy. There's always one or two individuals that have been stellar performers for the last 10 or 15 years. They've been loyal, but they're getting in the way of this transformation. What can the CEO do? That's, tough right yeah i think the question comes down to how serious are you about the transformation yeah yeah i agree i agree if you if this is the most important thing in, in the company's uh, future then you've got to be serious about how you react to this, those things and uh you sometimes do have to make difficult decisions about key individuals yeah. but if you change the reward structure uh, as mark uh, highlighted um sometimes those people can choose to change themselves mm-hmm so if you can encourage the right behaviours through a different reward structure, then you might find that the right type of people for your future of the business rise to the top and those that aren't going with it find themselves a different challenge somewhere else. So, you know, we're talking about teaching an old dog new tricks. Is, is, is reward the only way we can do that? I mean, is there any other mechanisms at a CEO... CEO's disposal to, to get these habits to change other than, other than money motivation, you know? Yeah. Reward, uh, I mean, we talk about colleague engagement... Um, I think people, you want people to be enjoying what they're doing. Uh, part of that is understanding where they're going. So how well painted the future vision is, is really important, I think. Uh, and if you can involve your colleagues in 
uh, the construction of part of that, uh, and certainly in following the progress towards it, then I think uh, people's um, enjoyment of their their, their vocation, their, their their job is going to be that much more enhanced. So I think reward very very important. But you've also got to like dealing with the customers in front of you. You've got to like dealing with the colleagues beside you. Uh, and you've got to feel that you're successful. So the way you put across the communication of these things is possibly equally as important mm. for many people as the reward side. Salespeople, um, perhaps reward is going to be at the top of the list, but it's not 100% reward. It's also about enjoyment of the day-to-day. I find as well it's not just uh, internal partners and internal stakeholders, but it's external partners as well. And it, you know, it's, it reminds me a little bit of like when you you know, want to give up smoking. It's, it's there's all these forces and people telling you, you know, not to do that. You know, oh, come on, just just come out for a smoke with me. And um, and similarly with some of the vendors, they don't want to see necessarily this change to an MSP. They want you selling their boxed products or their boxed software. Um, and it's tempting, especially when they're throwing things like co-marketing money at you and things like that to, uh, to accept that and continue with the old model. But all of it is like, you know, Lilliputians tying down Gulliver, just, oh, no, you're not going to get up. You're not going to change, you know? Um, Mark, have you seen, you, you, I know you work with uh, quite a lot of channel companies that have tight, tight relationships with maybe one or two vendors. What do you see in terms of that sort of resistance to change coming, not just internally, but from external vendors? I just want to go back on to something that Doug touched on. So, so the idea of reward, I think it's important to determine that reward doesn't actually have to be pure play financial either. And so I think understanding what motivates individuals and particularly key individuals that are going to be part of the change is, is really important. You know, some individuals are going to be motivated by status, you know, I, I think there was a, a piece of research done by Google's people analytics team recently. And actually what came out on top that was the key motivator in organizations was a sense of pride, mm-hmm. a sense of pride for the organization that you're representing. And that comes back to what we were saying earlier around communicating why we're doing this. And so how do you start to instill a sense of pride in people's roles that the work that they're doing actually is making a difference and they're making a contribution um, above themselves. And I think in a, you know, in a, in a tech company, um, that could be challenging, but you can look at parallels in, in, in different businesses and it's maybe it's about giving them a sense of autonomy and ownership over their role. I mean, Disney for years is kind of, you know, referred to, you know, it's people operating its rides, not as ride operators, but cast members, Right. So this, I think this element of role reframing, that if you want to drive change in a business, actually having someone to think about what is the difference they're making in our customers' lives. Um, and, you know, we touched on it with marketing earlier on, you know, marketing being this thing that's been typically known as interruption and annoying. And, you know, it's that cold call that you get when you're sat watching the TV at home versus Actually, if you're a marketer today, well, you can be a great teacher. You can be a great educator. You can be a great informer. And so I think, you know, how do you unlock a sense of pride and belonging and reframe someone's role um, to almost help them to to get greater meaning from it? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it it doesn't have to be about that we need to spend a ton of money on um, financial incentives to try and drive the behavior. Yeah. Let's talk more about the culture because... Yeah, 
I myself, CEO of a channel business, um, or have owned a channel business, uh, and meet a lot of CEOs that you know would say, "Well, we we've heard of culture, you know, but it feels a bit soft and squishy and, and don't quite understand it." And you talked about culture eating strategy for lunch, um, but isn't there something slightly false about deciding you're going to change the culture? I mean. In my mind, surely the culture is the culture. It is the embodiment of the business, however that's come about through natural evolution. To then say, right, we need to change the culture sounds inauthentic in some way to me. I, I think, and this is where a lot of companies get unstuck because they want to do an employee engagement exercise or they want to do a culture change exercise or whatever. And it comes back to what we're saying about VAR to MSP. The question's got to be Why? Like, what are we expecting to get as a result of this? And so I think really when you look at it, and we touched on it earlier, but culture being this invisible force, right? So culture is this invisible force, but what does it drive? It drives performance. Hmm. And so how your people feel when they come to work, whether they feel upbeat and motivated and full of energy, or whether they feel disrespected, downtrodden, disengaged, that is going to have a direct connection to the financial performance of your business. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think culture might be seen by some leaders as fluffy and soft, but I think culture, even though it might be seen in that way, certainly has an impact on the hard stuff. Mm. So one thing that isn't soft and fluffy is, well, certainly Doug's not soft and fluffy. So finance directors aren't soft and fluffy. Uh, and you mentioned about culture having an impact on the financial health of the business. So Doug, you know, you're in charge of making sure businesses are going concern, healthy finances. What's your view on culture? Personal view on culture, I go back to my own experience many years ago when I was a finance director of Hertz. Uh, and I thought the uh, numbers ruled everything. And then uh, I was given the opportunity to be the operations director. So I ran all the branches and all the customer relationships and things all around the country. And uh, I remember going to somewhere, I think it was Newcastle. Uh, I did branch visits around the UK. Uh, in Hyatt, say hi, have a cup of tea with the manager of the location and have a chat and have a look around the facilities. And I remember going to two places in Newcastle. One of them was the numbers were bad and I met the manager and it was a guy and he was pretty downtrodden. I thought, gosh, kind of not surprised. You know, he's not very alive, not very aware. Then I went to the other location in Newcastle, not far away. Uh, the lady was running it was just charismatic, jolly, happy. You could see that our staff were enjoying coming to work. They were doing exactly the same job that they were doing in the other Newcastle location. Uh, the results were completely different. And it was so obvious, so obvious. And So that was a turning? Completely. You know, high engagement uh, affects uh, staff retention. It affects customer retention. It affects, it affects revenue. It affects uh, profitability, obviously. And most importantly, the volumes within the, the locations. Uh, and if you get the culture wrong, you get the other branch in Newcastle. So although it's a very simple example, I've remembered that all the way through my career ever since. And uh, I've never doubted that uh, if there's a proper attention and appreciation of uh, culture within a business, the performance will be that much better than the competitors that don't uh, give it the same attention. It is not necessarily expensive, coming back to a financial point of view. It's not expensive to be motivational and jolly and happy. It's not about happy lights. It's just about being positive. Uh, and the, if you're running the business, the key thing is therefore identifying the talent that will be positive for you and will be naturally positive. So recruitment uh, is critical. And the recruitment tends to be um, 
the, the, the child of the chief executive because they, they choose a senior team that's going to choose the teams underneath, etc. So uh, really, really uh, critical and not necessarily all about spending lots of money on it. Mm. So it's, I would say from a finance perspective, looking after a culture is good value for money. So if culture is born from the people and it's born from the, the leadership position, we, you know, we, our audiences is channel, technical channel. IT channel and previously they've prided themselves on understanding product you know the B2B world has been dominated previously before SaaS before technology as a service been dominated by a features war you know you go in you talk about the features the speeds and feeds um, that's what was used to sell obviously as we move towards service it's less of a focus on feeds and speeds more of a focus on service outcomes so you talked about recruitment. Typically, channel companies, VARs, MSPs, have tried to hire the most technical people possible so that they can go toe-to-toe with a customer and do a better job than their competition. So if you're now saying that it's service-orientated, does that mean we need to hire more on attitudes and customer service behaviors than on technology skills? What do you say about that, Mark? I think um you know if 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 you're a if you're a b2b buyer today then you've experienced you know a number of decades of IT salespeople you know coming into your organization and maybe they did know more than you you know so maybe in terms of speeds and feeds and bits and bytes and and the spec sheets or whatever like they had the depth of knowledge Whereas I think now we're kind of living in an age where all of that has been democratized. It's all flattened, right? I can go on the internet and I can find out, you know, the information that I need about any kind of kit or or software application. And so in terms of, I suppose, the client experience, if you're in sales today and you're looking to go and get an appointment with a decision maker, you've got to be asking yourself, how is this person going to be better off as a result of me showing up? So what is my depth of knowledge about their industry, their challenges, you know, problems they're facing that they might even not even know that they're facing? Like, how can I almost act more as a consultant and advisor than a stereotypical salesperson? Because as you say, Al, you're now in the service game, right? And, and the other thing is that I think when you're selling managed services contracts, it's just not about maybe a one-off transaction, So you're not going in for that one million pound order and maybe you don't go and see that customer again, right? The lifetime value of your account with the right level of service now could actually outweigh Hmm. your previous type of engagements that you were doing. But you've got to demonstrate from the get-go, you know, empathy, understanding and a real compassion of what that individual is going through that you're going to go and meet with. Okay. And from a recruitment point of view, Doug, you you mentioned that having to replace people is very, very expensive. But one could argue that you need to replace people to change the culture. Because if people aren't prepared to change, particularly long in the tooth, old dogs, and all that sort of thing, maybe replacing people is a cheaper way to go. It takes less time. In some situations, if you want a radical change within a business, then I think that's, case, that's the case. I think I'd, I'd always be um, just a bit cautious about the, the phrase changing the culture, though. I, th- I think I always prefer uh, evolving Mm-hmm. the culture because it's, it's, it's changing the culture implies that today's culture is bad and there'll be elements of today's culture which are 
strong, great. You want to polish rather than nurture rather than uh, change completely. So I'd, I'd, I'd be taking the approach that you know, how do we evolve faster rather than how do we wholesale change it? I think evolving faster does involve different types of people potentially. I would look at the uh, not not necessarily the traditional uh, diversi- uh, diversity topics, but different brain types within the management team, different approaches to how to solve a problem, different approaches to how to understand the customer situation. Really important elements of how you uh, move a business forward. Uh, being more appreciative of others' perspective is always a healthy thing to, to look at. Uh, and as a chief executive, the stronger ones are the ones, in my view, the ones that are more able to take account of other others' perspectives and then make a decision rather than knowing what the decision is and forcing it on those other people's uh, um, uh, situations. Okay. So multiple aspects again. Thank you very much. So, Doug, Mark, that's been absolutely tremendous. You know, I'm sure our listeners have got some great insights um, from your experience in various transformations and there's so much more we could talk about, I know, and we've only touched on a few of the topics and you know, but we'll have you back. Will you come back? 100%. Fantastic. I'll be there. Fantastic. Okay, we'll have you back. And, and that's all for now, folks. So thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Predator Podcast. <laughs>